Good morning, Precious Church. It is so good to see your smiling faces and to be back in cool Michigan. I still, even though it was 62, some of the places I was this week, I still missed all of you. Um, I won't say I missed the 30 degrees, but I did miss all of you. And it is good to be back with you. I want to thank you as we get started for all of the many prayers and the notes and text messages of encouragement as my family, my sister and my brother and I all rallied together to help my mom and dad this week. They are not out of the woods yet and they are still very ill and I would ask and solicit your continued prayers for them. My dad, because of some sickness and not monitoring his medicine very well, got a very, very, very severe blood clot throughout one of his entire legs and they in the hospital they worked on him and now he's at home and they're trying to dissolve that and my mom requires constant care and so we he couldn't do that and so I had to pack her up and drive her to my sister's house in the south and she was somewhat resistant to that it was a it was a very difficult week with many 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 long hours of driving so thank you for your prayers but I'm here safe and with you and my parents seem to be doing a little better. So please continue to pray for them. You know, in those long hours of driving, they can be productive if you strive to make them so. And one of the things I like to do is I like to listen to books on tape. And sometimes I'll, uh, you know, be able to organize my thoughts into a sermon or into some other spiritual endeavor, a blog post or perhaps an article, but one of the things on a long drive that I find most refreshing is the long hours to be able to converse with my God. And I hope that you have those opportunities as well. Because when you're in the car, there isn't much else to do. You've got to stay awake unless you've got one of these new self-driving ones y'all are working on. But I think they wake you up when you nod off and I think, what's the point then? You know? I mean, if I've if I got a car that drives itself, you want to take advantage of it. But, you know, you can't do that. So all you can really do is listen or turn it all off and pray. And so as, as I was doing that this week and reflecting on my parents and my life and all of the incredible blessings that we've been given through the years, I thought a lot about my vocation as a preacher of the gospel for these almost 30 years now. And I thought about different places we've been and you know I'm somewhat melancholy and a little bit emotional because I love all of you so much and I know I won't be here with you much longer here preaching and working with you regularly. And so those thoughts and emotions flood my heart. And one of the things that my thoughts dwelt upon as I drove and as I prayed was all of the magnificent blessings of being privileged to be a preacher for the Lord's church. And there are so many different ways that's true. You've heard me say, and I mean it with all of my heart, if I had a thousand lives to live, I'd be a preacher in every one of them. This is the greatest life calling I believe that anyone can have. And part of it is because of what we do. We are spokesmen for the word of God. What a mantle of responsibility. Part of it is because of just the great nature of what we do, being able to work with and love people on a high level every day. 
But part of the reason it's been so joyous is because of just the undeserved good nature of God's people towards those who strive to serve. In fact, it's kind of ironic because as a preacher or an elder or a deacon or any other position in the church, it's a position of service. Yet I think most of us, and I think the elders would probably agree, most of us who serve are humbled by the fact that the people we are to serve have served us in so many powerful ways. I can't tell you how many times nice, generous, kind service has been extended to my family. I remember when I was a young preacher and we had very, very little money. In fact, we lived in a little house and we broke the window. Somehow the window got broken and a bird flew into it or something and we couldn't afford to fix it. So Lenore had to deal with a piece of plywood over that window for about a year but at that same congregation, our car broke down and we, we were just strapped. And I went to pay the bill and I was going to have to rob Peter to pay Paul and all of this. And I went to pay the bill and the man said, well, somebody came in and paid it. And I, I don't know who did that, but I know this. They were a member of the Lord's church. I know that. And I could give you a hundred other examples of when maybe we've been sick and I went outside and my yard had been mowed. Or just the kindness people have shown. When we moved here and I didn't know how to get my motorcycle because I wasn't about to ride it for 900 miles or whatever it is over potholes because those things are scary when you're not used to them. And one of the members here rode with me all the way down there and rode that thing all the way up. I mean, and those are just, just a few of the many, many examples and most of those things that just warm my heart and fill me with such joy and appreciation and humility because, you know, you don't feel worthy and deserving, they center around people's generosity, but more particularly around people's service. And this morning we're going to talk about the importance of being a people who practice and live and not, don't just do it, but are servanthood. A people whose very essence is all about serving other people. And when we look over in 1 John chapter 2, and the first couple chapters of 1 John are just so rich theologically as it talks about what benefit we have as we walk in the light through the blood of Jesus, how we are perpetually cleansed of our sin and therefore we can have true confidence, it says in chapter 5, knowing that we have eternal life because of that blood in Him. But in chapter 2, he gives us this, this brief statement that is so pregnant with meaning when he tells us, but verse 5, but whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. But this we know that we are in him. And he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now the he, there's the word him and he all throughout these verses, four or five times. They're all capitalized because it's speaking directly in context about Jesus Christ. 
And it tells us that if any of you say that you're in him, you must walk just as he walked. Now the word walk in scripture is a metaphor for something bigger. And I think it's because we all understand that when you're walking, you're going somewhere. It cannot describe a person who is stationary in any aspect of their life. If a person is standing still, if they're not really going anywhere in their work, in their professional life, you wouldn't say that they're on a walk, on a journey. They're just standing still. They're stationary. They got to be moving forward, doing something to be in a walk. And so all throughout the New Testament, this idea of walking is connected to Christian life. In fact, it tells us Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. Here in 1 John chapter 1, he said, But we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. When? When we walk in the light. So all of this has to do walking in the Spirit. That means there's the Spirit and you're making progress towards the Spirit. Walking in the light, there's the light. That means if the Spirit's here, not the Spirit, back here. That means if it's light, this direction is darkness. So there's just three basic ways you could categorize a person's life. Either they're moving towards the light, they're moving towards the darkness, or they're standing still and not moving. Those are the only, now, now there are different degrees of each thing, correct, except for the standing still one. You can be kind of inching towards the light, right? Or you could be running towards the light. But in either case, you're moving toward the light. You could be inching towards the darkness. You could be running towards the darkness. But in either case, there's progress in a direction. Everybody understand? So, it's really not hard to, to wrap your mind around. My daughter and I, we had a big, long conversation because she was with me on one of these drives. And she was talking about, what about my friends who aren't faithful in the church? And how do we know if they're still saved or if they're not? And there's just, just she was so concerned. And I said, honey, the scriptures are pretty clear. And the only person who really knows is that person. Because all of us stumble, all of us are weak, all of us have struggles, but I know and you know if you're moving toward the light. If you're growing, even if it's just a little. You know when you sin for the thousandth time. And you fall. You know if you really hate yourself for it. If you really hate that sin and you want to be better, you know the groaning of your heart or the absence of that. You know, guilt and shame and fear and this taste of it. You know, you know, only you know. But the Bible tells us that if we're walking, if we're moving toward the light, quickly or slowly, we're saved. But the other two conditions, standing still, that one worries me for some in the church. It does. Or moving, inching, or running towards the darkness. We're not. So it's not difficult really to know. It's difficult for me to see in you because I don't know your heart. And you don't know mine. 
But it's not difficult for we, us to know about ourselves. But yet in this text, he says, <clears throat> it's more than that. It's more than just walking toward the light. He says, we must walk just as he, Jesus, walked. Now, when we, the walking in the light part, that to me is the most encouraging thing ever. When we get to this walking just as he walked is when my feelings of inadequacy become, you know, paramount. They just compile. Because I read about my Jesus and the way he lived his life, the walk he walked. And I'm trying, but I don't know that my footsteps line up with his all the time. How about yours? Yet it is our life endeavor. It is the quest of Christian existence to walk as he walked. And to do that, there can be no question that this concept of service is intricate to the process. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28 Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus is going to speak to his disciples and he, he says so many profound things to them, but here it says he called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And I wonder if he kind of looked around. I don't know if they were in a crowd of people, but their society had castes, had the same kind of divisions that every society, no matter what kind of trappings we put on it or what kind of different labels we put on things or what kind of great utopian ideas of how to function in government or society, the truth is human beings are what they've always been, which is frail human beings. And there will always be, always be those at the top and there will always be those at the bottom. There will always be the rich. There will always be the poor. The Bible tells us that. There will always be those who rule and oppress and always be those who are ruled and oppressed. You can't fix it. Because there's always going to be sin in this world until there is no more world. Till the Lord wipes it away. So Jesus looks around at the social order of things and he says, look, you see that the Gentiles... They lord it over. There's this hierarchy, this structure, where those who are in control exercise control over those who are considered less than them. But verse 26 says, Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that verse is very profound because it speaks to the very purpose of why Jesus come. For the Son of Man did not come to be served. 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I'll tell you, that is a light that shines into the darkness of my heart and of yours because we still live in this world of orders and caste systems and those who have and have nots. And we still are pressured all around us every day to organize our lives based upon that paradigm. Are we not? I mean, at work? In social structures? I mean, if you're part of the, of the Rotary Club, the Rotary Club has a president and a vice president and a secretary, I never wanted to be that one, you know. A secretary, because that person just has to take notes all the time. And a treasurer, I really didn't want to be that one because, you know, I watched Don Christianberry too much. You know, he's busy. I, he, but every, every, organi- every single organization has that structure, right? He says, but it will not be so among you. And someone might say, especially those who don't understand the church from the outside. Well, the church is exactly the same way. You got elders and you got preachers and you got, yeah, but Jesus explained it here, didn't he? But he who desires to be great among you will be your servant. And he who desires to be first will be your slave. And it shines a light into our dark hearts at times because the truth is, is we do want to compare at times. We do want to, we do get so offended. And I'm telling you, this is more, we need to be on guard about this more than anyone in any other place in the Lord's church on this entire globe because we live in a society that tells us that we should always stand up for our rights and stand up for what we deserve and not let anybody ever do us wrong. And that doesn't really line up with walking in the footsteps of one who came to be done wrong. Who came to a world that didn't want him. Who he knew would abuse him. Mistreat him and reject him. But the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You can't separate walking as Jesus walked from the intense need to be transformed in our selfish hearts into people of real service. There are several ways that this must be true because these are attributes of Christ's servanthood. The first would be found in the text that Tommy read for us from Philippians chapter 2. He read starting in verse 3. Let's start in verse 5. Where Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Now some of your Bibles should say you should have the same mind as Christ. Who did not consider it robbery To be equal with God. Both of those are saying saying exactly the same thing. That Jesus was totally, completely, utterly co-equal with God. In fact, the Bible tells us in Colossians that Jesus, he is creator God. 
In fact, Jesus would make the claim himself in the book of John as he'll say several of those I am statements. He'll say the most compelling of all, I am, before Abraham was, I am. And then he'll tell us in John 8, he says, lest you believe that I am, and your Bibles will put the word he or who I claim to be, but it's in italics. Because what he really said in the original language is lest you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He is God. The all-powerful, omniscient God who spoke all that is into being. Who knows every hair on every person, all seven billion of them on their heads. Who created all the intricacies of this solar system and this earth and our existence and every cell and every DNA mapping that's within us. He is that God. It was not robbery for him to be equal with God. He deserved it. He didn't cons- but he didn't consider equality with God. It's something to be grasped. What that means in layman's terms. He let it go. You see, we think of God as God Father, God Son, God Spirit. We call it Trinity. Godhead is the Bible word it uses. The three personalities of God. But I think we only think in New Testament terms because you don't see those divisions before The book of Matthew. Did you know that? In the Old Testament? You don't see God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in those categories or those, I guess you might say, assignments, those roles. All you see are statements like this. Let us make man in our image in the book of Genesis chapter 1. Or perhaps you might read it in when you read the three different words for God in Deuteronomy 6 where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And the first one is singular, the second word is plural, and the third word is singular. So in essence it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God's is one God. And it doesn't distinguish Father, Son, Holy Spirit, different roles, one is over the other. No, no, no. So before we get to the plan of salvation, the scheme of redemption in the New Testament, we don't really have a, a division of Deity. No, no, no. We just have the three that are one. Totally and completely equal. But that's not exactly how it is now. Because the Bible says that Jesus will always now be at the right hand of the Father. And you see now and forevermore, there's a division of roles. There is the Father who is the judge of all that is. But there's the son who is the advocate. Who came and lived it. Experienced it. So he could advocate for us. Argue for us. Be our representative. And always be in subjection now to the will of the father. And then now there's the Holy Spirit who is the helper. Who lives within us. But I I believe. That those divisions didn't occur. There was three that were one until one of them decided that it did not need to be grasped and humbled himself forever. 
who became not just God, but now God and man. And if you haven't figured that out, that's a step down. Well, that text makes it really clear. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Not terribly complimentary of the human race. Not intended to be insultive, but just compared to what he was. Made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a man, of a servant, and being made in human likeness. We sing this song, Out of the Ivory Palaces and Into a World of Woe. But it wasn't just a business trip. It wasn't just an excursion. I'll be gone for a while and then I'll be home. Lenore and I talked every day on the phone. She mostly called because she wanted to talk to the baby, I think. But um, we talked every day on the phone. But I said, I'll be back Saturday night. I'll be back Saturday night. I can't wait till you get here. can't wait till you get here. But I can't imagine if I leave her and everything's going to always be different from now on. Always be different. Now, they'll still be back together. God, the Father, and the Son, they're together. But the roles are different. What service is that? To be willing to let it go, not to be grasped, but to make himself nothing. You see, the servanthood of Jesus is almost beyond our ability to reconcile or describe. The way that, I mean, we talk about services putting others first. How could we ever have a more magnificent example that he didn't just put others who were good to him or kind to him or faithful to him first? He put others who hated him first. No wonder he tells us that we can learn to love our enemies. Maybe we could also learn to not so be concerned about our rights. You see, this requires real meekness. Jesus was the very definition of meekness, which is the dictionary will tell you, power under restraint. You ever have to hold your tongue because it's the right thing to do? Just imagine being Jesus. That's the nature of a servant. To give something up that you are rightfully entitled to. And I promise you, there is nothing you're entitled to that you can give up that will even compare to what he did. And when it comes to the work of a servant, Jesus is clear in his description of this in, in the word of God. In Matthew chapter 5, 3 through 12, you remember that text where he goes into great detail about what he, we call the Beatitudes. And the first four of them really talk about a person's character. You know, the kind of person they're trying to be. A person who's meek and a person who's pure in heart and a person who's trying to 
to be humble, poor in spirit. But then he transitions to those who are merciful and those who are peacekeepers. And all of those are a description of a person who through transformation of themselves spiritually have become a servant. To be a peacekeeper, you gotta be a servant. To be one who is merciful to others, forgiving of others, you've gotta be a servant. It is not just what we are, it translates into what we do. And in Matthew 25, 34 through 40, Jesus gives a, a very clear description, a very clear image of what real service that he expects and that is modeled in walking in his footsteps, what it looks like when he says, the king will say to those on my right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer and say to him, Lord, uh, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus says it's not hard to know what real service looks like because real service, a real servant heart translates into what we do. It is compassion incarnate. It is kindness. And, and I think we must learn this if we want to become more and more be transformed into who he is through walking as he walked. Because I'll tell you, the more and more I read scripture, the more I realize that real service, real Christianity, real faith, real devotion is, comes across not just in the words that we say, but the tone in which we say them. And the intent of our heart, we've said it before here, if we want to be an evangelistic church, the first thing, the first key is pretty simple. Be nice. Be compassionate. Be loving. Be kind. And that means when you're talking about the Lord or when you're talking about work, or when you're talking about football. Or when you're talking about politics. Be nice. Be kind. Be like Jesus. Which brings us to a third observation. Not just the nature of a servant and the work of a servant. But I, I want to close with a story that Jesus told. And all of these passages have been familiar to every one of us, but I hope, I really truly hope that they give you a little different outlook. And the story, of course, is found in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 29, as the Pharisees come to him and they, looking for justification, they said, when Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So one of the Pharisees asked him, well, who is my neighbor? I want to know the limits on who I have to love. That's in essence what he's saying. And Jesus tells him a story with a powerful message. 
A man was traveling to Jericho from Jerusalem. He falls among thieves. You know this story. And of course, he's left beaten and left for dead and robbed. And there are three who come along. The first one who comes along is, you know, there's a priest and a scribe. I don't remember which, which order could they come in. A Levite and a scribe, whatever. And they come by and both of these are religious men. Both of these are considered religious leaders at their time, but it says that they pass on by. I don't know if they were afraid the thieves were still in wait, if they were in too big of a hurry, they didn't want to take the time, I don't know. I'd like to think the best of their character, that they were, would have liked to have helped, they were just afraid. But then Jesus says a Samaritan comes by. Now the Samaritan, that was really an edgy part of the story that none of us can really wrap our minds around because we don't really have any modern day equivalent of a Samaritan that I can think of. Maybe you might say, um, uh, and a member of ISIS comes along and sees him laying there, and I, I don't know. I don't know what we could say to compare it in our minds, but they were hated and despised by the Jews. But he talks about this Samaritan. He stops, he cares for the man. He binds his wounds. He takes him to an end. He pays for his stay. He says that if he owes you anything more, I'll come back through and pay for it again. And Jesus asks the lawyer, he says, well, who was it that was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? And the man can't even answer a Samaritan. He says, the one who helped him. But in that, really, if you analyze the text, you break down and you see that there are three worldviews, three ways that people look at life. The first are the robbers. And those robbers have this attitude about life and everybody else. They say, what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. I'm going to get what I can get for me and I don't care who it hurts. Are there still people who live that way? Not folks in the church, I don't think. Maybe false teachers, but for the most part, we don't have much of that in the church. Thank goodness. But then there's the priest and the Levite. And their attitude is remarkably better than that one. Because rather than saying what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. Their attitude is well what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. Sounds a little bit like I've got my rights. Doesn't it? What's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. Now that's not aggressively trying to damage anybody else but it is just as selfish as the first attitude and then you have the Samaritan who doesn't owe that man a Jew who have mistreated him no doubt all of his life he doesn't owe him anything doesn't owe him anything but his outlook on life is what's mine is yours and I'm going to share it. You see, that is the essence of servanthood. And as we wrap our minds around all of these things, I bring us back to that text we started in. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, as Jesus says very plainly through the Apostle John, we must walk just as he walked. And if we were to summarize who Jesus is, what his walk was all about, we turn back over to Philippians 2. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who in being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Well, as I prayed all this week in the car, reflected on how much undeserved service has been extended to me and my family. And I reflected on how I've got some growing to do to be that kind of servant for others. This morning I ask you, how much is service a part of your life? Real service. That spirit of Jesus. And I ask you this, Maybe for you it doesn't take a long drive to reflect on it and decide, I want to do better. Maybe for you it just takes sitting in a pew and hearing a lesson about it. If you need to make a change today, if you want to become more of a servant than you've been, strive to walk in His footsteps. Not just in the direction, but in His footsteps. Come right now as we stand and as we sing.